Welcome back. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Reflection is baked into lots of organized religions and philosophical traditions, but not all have a mandate to forgive. Every year, Jews around the world observe the High Holy Days. That's a 10-day period known as the Days of Awe. The period starts with Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, a time of rejoicing and family gatherings, and it ends with the more somber Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. At that time, it's customary for Jews to review their actions of the past year, apologize for any wrongdoing, and make amends to those they have harmed. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg started thinking a lot about this tradition, the true nature of atonement. That was about six years ago at the height of the Me Too movement. She went on to write on repentance and repair, making amends in an unapologetic world, in which she dives into the personal and public spheres, exploring what harm and forgiveness should look like. And she challenges readers to think about who is empowered to forgive. This week, we revisit an edited portion of our conversation, which originally broadcast in 2022. There's a map Mm -hmm. for addressing forgiveness. Talk to me a little bit about that history. So Moses Maimonides was a 12th century philosopher, physician, Torah scholar, who took a lot of earlier thinking on pretty much everything in Judaism and Jewish law from the Talmud and the Torah and from other earlier texts. Um, and he codified things and, and rearranged things so that it would be more accessible for the layperson to be able to sort of get into the day-to-day work of Jewish life and Jewish law. And in part of his rearranging things, he created what's known as the laws of repentance and if you study it closely, I believe offers five clear steps for the work of the perpetrator of harm to take responsibility for their errors and to take care of the victim of harm and to show us what the path forward might look like. And there are notes about forgiveness in there and and what the victim might or might not need to do in that work. Uh, But the focus is really on what the harm doer has done and needs to do. Has that philosophy turned up in ways that you see today in our present kind of justice system or even in our broader culture that isn't necessarily just rooted in your tradition? No, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> I un- unfortunately what I see. So, uh, in Judaism, the the emphasis is, is on uh, the harm doer cleaning up their mistakes and taking care of the victim, and repentance and forgiveness are really different tracks. And repentance, by the way, is not sitting around feeling bad. It's about coming back. The Hebrew word that we use really indicates sort of a return to who you are, who you're supposed to be, your integrity, your best self. And it's a set of actions. It's a set of steps that you're supposed to take. And this repentance and forgiveness are really separate tracks 
So you're supposed to forgive or else I can't finish. My repentance work doesn't exist in Judaism. And what we see in the wider culture so often is, oh, forgive and forget, just let it go, right? Turn the other cheek. Um, and there's very little that's asked of the harm doer. Like enough pa- time has passed. We don't even know what to ask of them more often than not, which is what I saw in the, the Me Too conversations and led to the book. What I'm hearing you say is that there isn't this dynamic uh, dependency between the two. So whether or not you do your repentance work, I'm going to forgive you, or I'm going to do the work of forgiving. Um, similarly, whether or not I am forgiven, I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to engage in this repentance work. What does it look like to do the forgiveness work? Let's take that first. So uh, first I want to talk about forgiveness as it's put in our culture for a moment. Um when we put the onus of resolving conflict on the person who was hurt, right? You, why you just forgive them already? We are expecting someone who was already hurt to do additional labor, right? That there's, <laughs> you were hurt. Now you have to go do all of these extra things, even though nobody is taking care of you. Nobody has necessarily made anything up to you. And so it's adding additional injury to someone who is already injured without any necessarily sense of justice or, or attentiveness to their needs. Um, when we uncouple it, we focus on the penitent person's obligations first and foremost to take responsibility for what they have done and to make amends for their actions, right? To attend to the victim's needs and to begin the work of transformation, to become the kind of person that does not do the thing anymore, to stop causing harm, to stop being a harm doer, to basically prevent future victims um, and to start becoming more of an agent of healing in the world. It sounds like it's core that transformation is rooted in a belief that people can change. Yes. Yes. You know, when you say that there's so much focus on the victim, the pressure to forgive, do you think it's fetishized in our culture? Yes. So much. Can you give me some examples? Give me some examples of what that looks like from your perspective. Oh, I hear it all the time. People say, oh, enough time has passed. I guess we should give so and so a lucrative uh, TV deal, right? Um, you know, we allow the comebacks, we enable without asking anything of the person. And the, so much onus is put on the person to forgive. One of my favorite examples, and when I say favorite, I mean ironically, is that as the scholar Sharona Pearl noted one day, this is a heavy emphasis in the media of asking. The family members, people who were black, unarmed people who were gunned down or otherwise killed by white policemen, if they forgive the people who killed their family member without any necessarily statement of even apology by the person who killed their family member. And 
it's often asked right in the wake of the shooting as the non-indictment from the grand jury is coming in whenever. And they say, you know, oh, do you forgive this person? And what they're asking is, do you absolve the system? Right? Are you willing to say everything is okay? Are you willing to let go? And, and that is so often what happens, right? When we push forgiveness on people who are already harmed, we are basically reinscribing the existing power structure. Nobody should ever ask a victim to forgive, right? Forgiveness comes from the victim when they are ready at their own time. So if somebody wants to engage in constructive healing, what does that look like? Um, we have a lot of healing to do. Uh, the steps of repentance, maybe I'll start there, are A, owning the harm without qualifications, without justifications about what a nice person you really are and you didn't mean any harm, right? Just, I did this thing. It was not okay. Now you have to own what you did, which means you already have to uh, face the fact that you are not this good, blameless person that you like to think you are right? There's a lot of that sort of pre-work has to happen. And then so you have to own what you did out loud, ideally publicly, because you're asking for accountability and you're ending the gaslighting, right? The victim finally gets to hear from your mouth that you're taking responsibility. You know, there's no question. You know, we, we stop doubting the victim's uh, words about what happened. Uh, then the perpetrator has to begin to change. Right to start trying to be someone different. Is, is that therapy? Do you call your sponsor? Do you need to educate yourself? What needs to happen? If we're talking about institutional uh, repentance, does the HR need to develop new policies so they don't bury complaints anymore? Do we need to fire the board? Like, Do we need to write up policies about donors and whose money we take and don't take? Um, how do we stop doing the thing again? Then amends, which is done in relationship with the harmed party. We don't make amends at somebody. We ask them what they need. So that requires a relationship. Mm -hmm. It requires, and that's hard for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to show up. And um, sort of again and again and again, after you have caused harm, you have to go through these steps of... Uh, humility and refacing again and again what you did from different angles. And when you hear from the person you hurt what they need, you may learn something new about what you did or what the impact was, right? And that's important too. And so it's only after the amends, the act of repair, reparations, if you will, that the apology comes. Action first, word second. And then the last step is making a different choice the next time you have the opportunity to do the thing. And there's always a an opportunity to do the thing again. But you can naturally and organically, if you have done the work to change, you will make a different choice because you're already different. 
I was having a conversation with someone about forgiveness and beliefs around this process of healing. Mm -hmm. And uh, his observation was, or point of view is that the rise in disaffiliation, the absence of having spaces um, in community to impart certain lessons and embody certain values uh, like mercy and mm -hmm. forgiveness has left an entire generation fixated on demanding justice without understanding the rest of it. What do you, what do you think about that? I think it's really interesting that someone who's religious, their critique is there's not enough forgiveness. There's too much ask for justice because as I noted, pushing, you know, asking, pushing a, a victim to forgive is a way to reinscribe existing power structures. I think we need justice. Um, but I think we need to understand what that is because, uh, you know, locking somebody in a cage isn't going to help them understand what they did and face it and take responsibility. And it's not going to help them do what they need to do to uh, attend to their victim's healing process. Mm -hmm. And locking somebody in a cage usually doesn't uh, help the victim either. It's usually that process re-traumatizes the victim. So we need to find ways to bring real justice that also facilitate real healing. And then you have to look really carefully at culpability. Are we talking about an institution causing harm? Like, uh, you know, house of worship or an entire denomination? And if so, you know, there are maybe a number of bodies that need to move and a number of actors that need to engage. And yes, the institution needs to take responsibility, even if the person who was in charge when the harm happened has gone off and taken another job. I would say that person as an individual has a moral responsibility, but the institution has a responsibility to say, yes, we did not do right by people who trusted us to care for their children who, you know, whatever. And here are the things that are going to change so that that's never happens again. And, you know, and these are, these are the amends and, you know, or what amends do you need? Right. And, and what kind of space are we going to give you so that our apology is going to feel real and genuine and not just a cover your tush kind of a thing. Right. And what kinds of process do the people who are hurt need? to feel like their needs and voices are uh, being addressed, right? Um, and then we can even look at harm at the national level and the steps work there too. When you describe that, give me an example of when you have seen it work. So I haven't seen any one country do it perfectly. I, I think a body is enormous and fraught as an entire nation probably can't do it perfectly, but that doesn't mean they don't have a moral obligation to try. And I will note that by the time we're getting to the level of national obligation for repentance, we're probably dealing with atrocities that can never be forgiven, 
So just because something can never be forgiven does not mean there's not an obligation for repentance work. Okay. Um, but for example, we saw South Africa begin the work of, uh, confession, right? The Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, in the early mid nineties was a powerful, extraordinary example of the confession step making profound space for people to tell the truth about what happened in a way that was televised so that nobody could deny like this was as Archbishop Tutu said, like this is apartheid. This is what happened. And nobody can pretend that anything else, you know, except this extreme brutality was what apartheid really is. Um, and part of the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was to formulate a whole system of um, both reparations, right, financial reparations to, to victims, and systemic changes that were meant to uh, really change the game in terms of making future choices, like a tax on those who profited most from apartheid that were then going to benefit those, the other 90% of the country who were not white the colonized nation, um, in order to bring equity and justice, um, and to try to level out those, those financial, uh, inequalities. The problem is it was never implemented. And so South Africa remains the most unequal country in the world. Um, you saw in Germany, uh, they have gone through in fits and starts all of the stages of repentance, but they didn't do them in order because the German grappling with the Holocaust included so many layers of denial and, you know, and fear and that there was reparations before there was facing it, before there was acknowledgement and it was very complicated. Um, but I see a lot of potential actually in the land back movement that's happening in the U.S. today. What is the land back movement? So, um, one of the two great founding sins of the United States of America is the genocide and land theft of the indigenous people of Turtle Island, of, of this continent. Um, the other, of course, is the enslavement of people of African descent. Um, and over the last number of years, there has been a growing movement to restore land to the native tribes to whom it truly belongs. Little by little, tracts are being restored to their original owners who are the true caretakers of this land. And that is a true amends coupled with if we could do a real profound ownership of what really happened, you know, right now. There was an invitation to the confession stuff, such as it was, and, uh, you know, more than half the country said, no, thank you. We would not like to own what really happened. The moment we say, this happened, right, this is real, Systemic racism and the ongoing oppression of Black and Native peoples is not something that stopped uh, with the American Revolution. This has been an ongoing uh, atrocity, and we're responsible. 
right? The confession, you name it, then you have to start to change. And what happens if we uh, begin to be committed to uprooting white supremacy in this country? I hear what you're saying, but I'm also hearing folks who say, you know, we're not land wealthy people. We, we're just hardworking. We have all kinds of struggles. And now I'm being asked to apologize for things that I didn't do and to do repair work for things I didn't break. How do you, and, and faith ends up coming into that, right? Some people feel that they are being, uh, What's the expression that I've heard a couple times recently? That they're being saddled with the sins of their fathers. How do you reply to that? Uh, if we want to speak about my specific family lineage, we were running from the Cossacks when the worst of these crimes were happening. Right, my family didn't show up in the states until the you know late nineteenth century at the earliest, and as Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, an important rabbi and theologian whose family was all murdered in the Holocaust, and he made it to the States, says, some are guilty, all are responsible. Even though my family was not involved in uh, the architecture of, of these crimes, I receive the benefits of white supremacy every single day. When I go into a hospital, I am treated like a white person and it is not assumed that I don't feel pain. Though, even though doctors make this horrific assumption about black people all the time, right? My 13 year old is already an adult sized and I do not have to give him the same talk that black parents have to give their children, right? The epigenetic trauma that our family carries is nothing like that of Native families that are here today. I am a beneficiary of white supremacy. And as such... I am someone who lives in an unjust world. I am a human being who lives in an unjust world. And that enough should be the catalyst for my obligation to fight for a more just world. What I don't hear you saying is that you feel like a responsibility to repent, but to fight for a more just world. I, I hear a distinction in how you're describing it. And I appreciate those examples. It sounds like what you're not saying is everyone needs to feel a sense of responsibility for what happened, but everyone needs to feel a responsibility for repairing the harm that has happened. Okay. So, so is that accurate or is that, am I, am I putting, am I making that too, am I softening the edges on that too much? So uh, in terms of who has the obligation to do the true repentance work for national harm, I think the answer is, you know, in the cases we've been talking about, the answer is the U.S. government, right? <laughs> who, who committed the harms? Functionally, the government. So who is responsible to do, um, like, really to walk through the steps one by one is the government. Um, and, again, in... This system, repentance, isn't about walking around feeling bad about yourself, 
right? I think that's a lot of white people when they encounter conversations about anti-racism think they're supposed to feel walk around feeling guilty. And that's not it. It's about seeing that things are not right and that we all have an obligation to be part of the people, you know, writing the table and, and making it someplace that we are all sitting around. Um, and our government has to do uh, certain pieces of this work but we are all part of this polis, and, and so we all have our role. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg is an award-winning author and writer. She serves as the scholar-in-residence at the National Council of Jewish Women. Her latest book on repentance and repair is a National Jewish Book Award winner, and an American Library Association's Sophie Brody Honor Book. Her writing has appeared in multiple outlets, including The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Salon, Time, Religion News Service, and many other publications. That's all for this week's show. This week's producers are Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision. Blue Dot Sessions, and Audio Binger for our music. If you're interested in learning more about our guests this week, head over to interfaithradio.org to explore. And while you're there, you could learn more about us, read the show notes, sign up for the newsletter, and explore the archives. You can also download this episode and subscribe to the podcast. Just search Interfaith Voices in the pod catcher of your choice. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you the show. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week. Mm